0: Countrywide on ABC Radio. Ultimately, we have animals in society because they turn food that we can't eat into food
1: that we can.
2: Now when I pick up a carrot, it's not just an ordinary carrot.
1: Countrywide. 30,000 tonnes a week, something like
2: that. Uh, That doesn't even cover the issue on broadband. Climb down off your ivory tower in Canberra. You've never set foot on a farm.
0: Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio.
3: G'day, g'day. Welcome to Countrywide. I'm Lucy Cooper, bringing you the program this week from Townsville on Bindle and Wulgarukabar country in North Queensland. I have a question for you. What's your favourite big thing? Here in North Queensland, we have the big mango. Across the country, there's the big merino, the big banana, and even a big bogan. But sometimes the big things aren't big business. For one country town... They're trying to turn that around.
2: It'll be something nice to be able to drive past and see that something's happening there. So I think it's a great idea that someone's looking to pick it up and and to do a restaurant, cafe, brewery. Uh, I think it's great.
3: And have you ever had miso? It's a Japanese delicacy that's just won big at Australia's premier food prize.
4: Uh, I started rice culture 10 years ago for, to, to make miso for, for um, the local Japanese community. Never expected this to happen.
3: <laughs> First up though, pastoralists in the north of Western Australia have been assessing the damages on their stations after tropical cyclone Ilsa crossed the coast in the early hours of Friday morning. The storm crossed as a severe Category 5 system and has caused millions of dollars of damage across stations and, in particular, Pardue Roadhouse, east of Port Hedland. It's not all bad news. There has also been some good rain for some. Mark Bettany owns De Grey Station, where it looks like they've dodged the bulk of the damage.
5: Yeah, well, it, it uh, was a bit concerning when we went to bed, obviously, with, um, with the cyclone sort of coming our way, and, and, uh, but we managed to... Yeah, you know, the kids managed to get to sleep okay, and um, you know, it was pretty windy, very very noisy outside at about eleven o'clock. And of course, we couldn't see anything, so it was a little bit concerning. But um, yeah, waking up this morning, um, it's, we fed pretty well.
6: You're you're outside at the moment. What can you see? Has there been any damage
5: at all? Uh, well, I see the buildings. The buildings are all okay. I mean, we've lost the satellite dish off the roof, um, so we won't have won't have TV, but. Uh, We still have internet, mobile phone signals dropped out, so I'd say a few um, aerials have moved around. But, yeah, building's okay. The garden's a bit of a mess, but I've seen worse. So, you know, we're very lucky.
6: What about your horses and cattle? What did you do with them?
5: Uh, I had um, a stallion and a couple of broodmares uh, and their foals, the young foals that I was pretty worried about. So I actually made a little yard between a couple of shipping containers and and a horse truck and blocked the wind off so they were okay. And I went down... Uh, 5 o'clock this morning, and they're all okay. They're uh, happy to see me, so I let them out. And they're out grazing now, and the and the main uh, the other mob of horses I had in the yards, and, and they're, they're okay too. So, yeah, very happy about that.
6: Have you been able to check on any of your neighbours at this point?
5: Uh, I've heard from Yuri and um, they're all well out there. They've sustained they've a little bit of damage, and the, the garden's a lot worse than ours, apparently. Um, but I haven't been able to talk to... Um, one of our homesteads, Mully, so I'm going to go for a flight and check check on the three staff members we've got over there. And I haven't heard from Muckin, who's our, another neighbour of ours, or pardu, so yeah, I'm a bit concerned about them.
6: So what can what what will the next few days look like for you? I mean, will you be able to, I know you're saying you're going to get up in your chopper and have a look, are you, are you cut off at all at this point?
5: Oh, no, I don't think we're cut off. I think we've only had 70 mils of rain, so... We'd be able to get to town, no problem. Um, but the river will come down bigger. Um, Mullery will be locked in there, so they won't be able to get to town because they'll probably have a, a river on either side of them. But, um, yeah, for us, it's just cleaning up. Like, we've got to let it uh, dry out before we can move around a little bit. But, yeah, just cleaning up all the garden rubbish and putting putting things back out of beds and lifting cyclone shutters up.
6: Yep, the bit of work ahead. Uh, look, it sounds like you've dodged a bullet.
5: Yeah, I think so. I think... We're very lucky and I hope um I hope Padu and Patu Radios and uh, all those other places, Mark and Yari are all okay and Yeah, feel for them at the moment.
6: Uh good to talk to you, Mark, and I'm glad you're safe and well.
5: Yeah, no worries, thanks for checking in and yeah, I got a lot of we got a lot of support yesterday. Like I had people texted me all day and just like to say thank you to everyone who checked checked in and you know, it means a lot.
3: Mark Bettany there from De Grey Station, speaking with Nadia Mitsopoulos on Friday morning. A bit of cleaning up to do, but he feels like he's dodged a bullet, thankfully.
0: From the Top End to Tassie. Countrywide on ABC Radio.
3: This week, Australia's relationship with China took a turn when Acting Prime Minister Penny Wong announced the federal government had asked the World Trade Organisation to suspend its appeal on Beijing's decision to apply tariffs to Australian barley. Now, farmers and exporters have welcomed this news, but what does this actually mean, not just for the food we eat, but for our broader relationship with China? To help make sense of it all, National Rural Reporter Kath Sullivan joins me to discuss. Kath, welcome to Countrywide.
1: Hey there, Lucy.
3: Take me back to the beginning. How did this all kick off really back in 2020?
1: Yeah, right. So it has been a little while now. But if we think back to uh, 2020, I think it was actually Mother's Day when the Australian grains industry first got wind that China was considering imposing tariffs of, it basically worked out at 80%, and Beijing was accusing Australian grain growers of uh, dumping product in China, that is, selling barley below the cost of production, saying they were selling it for cheaper than what it was to actually grow it and ship it there. And they also suggested that Australian farmers were being subsidised by the government so that's where the idea of these tariffs came in. It was Mother's Day when it was first floated, just as the COVID-19 pandemic was really kicking off. And you might recall about that time, a number of Australian abattoirs, I think it was about four to start off with, also had their trade with China blocked. And it was about this time that the Australian government was calling for an investigation into the origins of COVID-19. So it was sort of part of this greater geopolitical story. And Barlow was one of the first Australian commodities to really be caught up what we've now come to know as a trade war. And, and while we talk about May as sort of the the start of it, it was sort of later that year that the Chinese government confirmed or locked in these tariffs for five years. And so subsequently we've seen very little Australian barley sold to China
3: since. So what did the Australian government do as a
1: reaction to this? Mm. You have to think, right, this is pretty shocking because in 2018, I think it was 2018, um, police, don't at me if I've got the dates wrong but the trade was like worth more than a billion dollars China loved Australian barley it was buying heaps and what's more it was paying heat for it this is because China would use the barley to brew spirits and beer as well as to feed its livestock and that really offered a premium which the grains industry has kicked around saying is probably worth about 20 to 30 dollars per tonne to Australian growers maybe like five six $700 million a year more than other markets have been prepared to pay for it. So the Australian government was like aggrieved. The industry was aggrieved. It maintains that Australia's always been uh, played by the competition rules. There's no subsidising. There's no dumping. And so it decided to refer this um, these tariffs to the World Trade Organisation, which is a bit like an independent umpire. And uh, it basically... Um, This was the first time Australia had made an an appeal to the WTO based on an agricultural commodity, so it was a a decision not taken lightly. Um, The grains industry was pretty split at the time as to whether or not it would be a good idea. Now, we haven't heard from the World Trade Organisation as to whether or not Australia has been wronged. Uh, We were actually expecting a decision. It seems it's taken a long time, right? But the mm. World Trade Organisation was expected to hand down a ruling on this case Well, in the first quarter of this year, so basically any day now, and mm. there's plenty of speculation to say that it would have been in Australia's favour. This week,
3: as some would actually say, quite surprisingly, the Australian government decided to suspend the appeal. Why did they do that? Why, why do we think they made that decision?
1: Well, Penny Wong, who made the announcement together with the Trade Minister, John Farrell, says that they think they can resolve the issues and resume the trade of Australian barley into China um, by dealing, negotiating face-to-face with China. They've suspended the WTO appeal for three to four months and have said that they reserve the right to kick off this WTO action again if at the end of this four months the situation isn't resolved. But China's told Australia it's prepared to review the tariffs and the Australian government is quietly confident that this will lead to a resumption of the trade. But you've got to admit, Lucy, it really is a sign of goodwill. There are plenty of people who are discreetly saying, you know, it may not change anything, but uh, there are just as many people saying this is an opportunity to help China save face, I suppose you could say, um, and to resume the trade quite quickly. Then when we talk about the trade, you know, Australian growers, it's actually really interesting. We know that they've lost out on a premium market, but at the same time, Australian farmers have just produced their third largest barley crop ever, <laughs> would you believe? So it's a, it's a really fascinating time.
3: Super fascinating and super interesting to hear just how successful they're continuing to be. It was at the time a huge, we've put out all our eggs in the one basket kind of situation and everyone was, was really, it, it made everyone look to other markets. In saying all of that, China is still sought after uh, as a market and, you know, grain growers have, have said they welcomed, you know, this, this decision. Uh, do we have any indication on when that barley trade, given barley is at the centre of this, might resume with China?
1: Yeah, okay. So we know that the Australian government or China's said three to four months for a review grain traders have told me that they'll be ready to go the minute that they're given the green light to resume trade for barley. Um, We've got a lot of barley that's being shipped and exported out of Australia at the moment. Markets like Saudi Arabia, which buys Australian barley to feed livestock. Um, At one stage, Australia was exporting hundreds of tonnes of barley to Mexico, where it established a new market providing barley for beer brewing there. Those markets, the industry will be keen to maintain, but it will also be keen to get back into China as quickly as possible because of that premium that we mentioned.
3: I just think it's a fascinating situation where we're really looking at a single crop barley being really the the start of of rebuilding that relationship with China. Who who knew um, you know, agricultural crops could have such such power. Do you think that this might signal better things, you know, for the Australian China relationship?
1: Yeah, and it's a really difficult question to answer, perhaps above my pay grade <laughs> or yours. But um there are probably a couple of things worth pointing out here. Um, about the significance of the decision to suspend the WTO Bali case. Um, let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're not selling barley to China yet. It's still a big if, but it looks like things are heading in that direction. But you rightly touch on things like TikTok, TikTok bans and Australia's AUKUS agreement, security packs. Um, there's so much that goes into this relationship it's really difficult to know that just how influential this decision will be but certainly for australian farmers and exporters that had typically sold and some continue to sell into china they hope that this will be a resumption of a trade it may not be as valuable as what it was before Mm. these sanctions were introduced but it's still such a lucrative market and so important to to australia's exporters
3: kath thanks so much for joining me no worries lucy Kath Sullivan, ABC's National Rural Reporter. You're listening to Countrywide. I'm Lucy Cooper.
0: From the paddock to the plate, Countrywide on ABC Radio.
3: Australia's premier food prize was awarded in Sydney this week. It's called the President's Medal and it recognises the cream of the crop for food and beverage producers here in Australia. This year, it went to Rice Culture, a business run by a small group of Japanese women who are producing miso from Aussie soybeans and rice, using a traditional method of hand production. It's an extraordinary achievement, given there were five other finalists from around the country, some of them big corporate players. David Claughton was at the Easter Show for the President's Medal dinner.
4: Speechless. <laughs>
3: yes, I noticed you. You couldn't quite come out with much more than thank yeah. you at the speech time. But yeah. it is a remarkable night for you.
0: It's been a journey, hasn't it, over the last seventeen years since you've been in Australia.
4: It is. Yes, and uh, I started rice culture ten years ago, for to to make miso for for um, the local Japanese community. Never expected this to happen. <laughs>
0: And this award really is one of the premier food awards in the country. You're really like the creme de la creme, maybe the best in the country right now.
4: So so honored, so honored. Thank you so much. Well, yeah.
0: tell me about miso, because it's not a product that most Australians... Well, we would have had some at a Japanese yeah. restaurant, but where does it come from? How is it made?
4: So uh, miso comes from Japan. It was, um, the, the, it's been around for like 1,300 years. And um, it's made of um, rice, soybean, um, salt and a culture called koji.
0: Um, tell me about koji. What is that?
4: Koji is fermented rice and um, it, it, is the, it is the works of a fungus called Aspergillus oryzae. That's not
0: sounding very tasty. <laughs> it, it,
4: it, um, but it is the foundation of all Japanese food really. It, it is what ferments um, soy sauce, miso, um, sake, Mirin. So without koji, there won't be any Japanese food.
0: And you're making it in a very traditional way, I understand.
4: Yes, we are making everything by hand. Um, we, we steam rice in a wooden steamer. And then uh, we inoculate with the, with the culture and ferme- uh, ferment in a warm um, environment, warm, humid environment for 48 hours.
0: And it can take time to produce miso, yeah? Like years, in fact.
4: It, it can. Um, so after fermenting for 48, uh, uh, 48 hours, we mix with soybeans and then the miso is fermented for usually a, a, a year. But some of our products are five years old or even longer.
0: And this one that you've won for tonight is really unprecedented as far as I'm aware worldwide, like five years. It's, what happened? How did that come about?
4: <laughs> it started off by we um, forgetting a bunch of, of buckets.
0: <laughs> forgetting about the bucket.
4: <laughs> but it, 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 um, it, it ended up being a very tasty tasty um, and very complex flavour.
0: This is a, a business built around women, is that why?
4: It, it is indeed. Um, all, we all Japanese mums. And um, I, I, I first started this in the, um, business because I couldn't, um, it was hard for me to work outside um, while I was having my kids. So um, it was convenient for me to have the working hours around uh, while the kids were at school. And then I, um, my other mums joined me.
0: And it wasn't easy for you to even do a business, you did face some opposition from the men, I understand.
4: Yeah, yes, I did. <laughs> what happened? Um, well, it, in Japan, it, it's, um, it's not easy for, for newcomers to join a business, especially, especially women. But here in Australia, there's much more opportunities. Well,
0: look, there are people waiting to photograph you and talk to you and celebrate you tonight. And it's been a great pleasure to meet you. Congratulations. What's a remarkable achievement.
4: Thank you so much. Thank you.
3: David Claughton reporting from the President's Medal Dinner held in Sydney, which was won by Rice Culture from Queensland for their vintage miso. And I don't know about you, but that has definitely gotten me in the mood for some Japanese food, particularly maybe a bowl of ramen. Now, changing tack, what's your favourite big Australian icon? As a born and bred Tasmanian, I can't go past the big Tassie devil in Mole Creek in Tasmania. Some of these big things we can go inside, like the big pineapple. Others are just a treat we get to see on a long road trip. For one big thing, the Big Orange. It could become the next big dining destination in South Australia's Riverland. An Adelaide-based urban planner has submitted an application to turn the Big Orange in Berry into a distillery, brewery bar and restaurant. The 15-metre-tall Orange Sphere was originally opened in 1980 as a nod to the region's thriving citrus industry and featured an artist studio, panoramic lookout and local produce display. Venus Citrus Managing Director Helen Angeleros says she hopes plans to revitalise the site will boast local trade and tourism. So I think it's fantastic that something is done there, like it's been shut for
2: 20 years so that's fine it doesn't have to be with citrus like anything like that to it'll it'll boost more trade in the riverland it'll be something nice to be able to drive past and see that something's happening there so i think it's a great idea that someone's looking to pick it up and, and to do a restaurant cafe brewery uh, i think it's great it's been shut for so long i think any any development in the area brings employment brings people to the area I reckon it's fantastic.
7: Do you know much about the history of the site of the Big Orange and, and whether it no. has been attraction in the past?
2: No, I no I don't. Um, I I probably I, I don't, when it when it was operating, I think many many years ago. I I did take uh, some friends there. But there wasn't much there. It was just like you climbed up the top and it was sort of a bit of a lookout. I think they had some information about the riverlands. Yeah, I don't remember much about it, to be honest.
7: And, um, yeah, I guess any thoughts, as you said, obviously it it's could be a good tourism draw card. What might the sort of cafe and distillery yeah. and brewery mean for the local citrus industry?
2: For the local citrus industry, I, I think anything that brings people to the area makes people more aware of what the Riverland stands for. It promotes the Riverland and it promotes all the produce and and the Riverland is well, it's big in citrus, in almonds, in grapes, but it's also big in a lot of other niche type producers around like dried fruits and jams and other things. And I think it's fantastic. So the more people that we attract to the area. The more facilities that we have to get people interested to come in, I think it serves the purpose for all the produce that's growing in the Riverland.
7: Do you have any thoughts or would you hope that perhaps the development could have a bit more of a nod to local citrus, whether that's on the menu or on the drinks they might create?
2: A hundred percent. I think that um, that would be great and maybe a bit of a history on you know what the site was before um, so it'd be great if, like you said, on the menu or a drink that, you know, fresh orange juice or something of that nature, it'd be fantastic. Or they do the, the different gins now. So if it's a distillery, you know, you've got your blood orange gin, which is really nice. So, yeah, definitely.
7: How well known do you think it is around Australia and for, for tourists that come that, that the Riverland does produce a lot of uh, citrus?
2: Um, I think it's known i don't know that it's known to the degree that it does, but i, I you know people that i meet and and talk to you know city based people um they do know that uh, you know some of the best citrus comes from the riverlands and it's well known in the export area as well so it is known, maybe it's not known to the degree of what we produce here, but it is known that, you know, our sandy soils and our weather does produce some really excellent citrus.
7: Venus citruses, Helen Angolotos, Berry Barmer Council Mayor Ella Winnell, says the Big Orange's big appeal is its big novelty factor.
2: Well, I can't speak on the particular uh, application because it is currently under assessment, but like all Riverlanders, I'd be stoked to see the site you know reopen and trading and I think it um, has a huge amount of potential for not just Berry but the whole Riverland.
0: Why do you think it gets so much interest I mean everyone just seems to look at it and go wow this is something that needs to happen but it's that for so long why do you think it generates that kind of feeling in people?
8: Well,
2: it's pretty novel, and, and I think it's, um, it's also got a lot of memories for people. I mean, I know when I first moved to the Riverland, my family went out there every week with my much, much younger brother because he was obsessed with it. Um, I think all of us have got, uh, you know, a, a, lot of, a lot of memories of the place, so it's got a bit of nostalgia.
3: Barry Bermurra Council Mayor Ella Winnell speaking with Matt Stevens, and that story from Eliza Bellage. Coming up next on the program, we will be talking about cockles. What are they and how can we eat them?
0: What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide, the politics of food and farming.
3: Have you ever eaten cockles? You may have seen them on restaurant menus. They can also be labelled as pippies or clams. They're a small mollusk found on the ocean floor. In Western Australia, Bobby Holt is one of only a few people authorised to harvest wild WA cockles. He spent the last 10 years raking cockles by hand at Shark Bay, where there seems to be an unusual abundance of them.
8: Well, I've always been a fisherman of some sort. started off as a net fisherman in 1969, and I did that continuously in amongst here until 1988. And then uh, there was an interest in blue swimmer crabs within the bay. The very first pot we made, we took it out and put it, Near the, in amongst the boat moorings and the next day we got 27 sized crabs in one pot the old uh, ka-ching, ka-ching, started ticking up <laughs> <laughs> so we immediately went ashore and started making pots and, and I continued on crab potting from 88 to 208 thought I had enough money to retire the bank account with it, one door out and nothing in wasn't going to work for too long I heard a whisper of cockles somebody was interested in cockles so I'd better go and have a look for some cockles.
9: What do you reckon is different about Shark Bay, that there seems to be this abundance of cockles here? You've been fishing roughly the same area for 10 years and you haven't run out.
8: Well, Shark Bay is different ecologically all round. so it was all, if there were going to be something different with cockles, it would happen in Shark Bay. And that's what happened. Even this little lagoon we used to come over here as kids and collect cockles and put them in the billy or put them on the fire. And so we knew a little bit about it, but not to that extent.
9: Yeah. So it's been a bit of a journey, a learning journey for you as well?
8: Oh absolutely, I had no idea what to expect and I'm gratefully surprised that it's, there's an abundance of them there. Yeah, yeah,
9: yeah. So you as a kid you were mucking around eating cockles, you knew that they were a good eating, just didn't know that there'd be a market for them.
8: Had no idea but and we didn't even know which one we could eat, but we just ate what our oldest said we could eat. From what I can gather, most of our people lived along the coastline and obviously that's where most of the food was available and everywhere they camped would have been alongside the beach or on the beach, so the first thing you do is walk out and grab a feed of cobbles.
9: <laughs> Makes sense, I suppose. Yeah. And the
8: rest would come after.
9: So take me through an average day's fishing, Bobby. What
8: do you do? Well it's basically only a kind of a rake with a wire tray welded on the back of it and on the back of that, a mesh bag which a cock will fall into. Front of the rake is a rope which we clip onto a sailboard harness on, on us and we actually walk backwards and we've got Two handles on the rake that we can guide it in out or sideways and uh, dig your toes in and give it a.
9: And that disturbs the cockles doesn't it? They're not that far underneath the surface on the bottom of the yeah,
8: ocean. It's about 100 mm I'd say. Yep. Not all of them but you can see some and you can feel them with your feet. That's why I prefer to do it without boots on so I can feel what I'm up against. The, this particular one is the, the most sought after one. And, this one, yeah, and fortunately for us, they're the most abundant. So,
9: so what's this one called?
8: It's a Venus crab.
9: Okay.
8: But this, this, the mixed ones, as we call them, would only make up three to five percent of it. But it's all relevant to the tide whether we can get in the right spot at the right time. Yeah. And today's nice conditions, but not ideal for raking. Cockles.
9: <laughs> and you're basically sifting them, aren't you? Because you've got some holes through the tray there and they just. They're
8: yeah, basically, it's nearly a self made sieve. We just give them a bit of a shake around and a All the broken ones and the half ones fall through.
9: Yep. And from here, once you've sorted them, they're in bags and they're off to market. They're
8: in bags, they're all alive still, and they're all sold alive. Which makes our life a little bit easier, Yeah. no discrepancy other it. No.
9: Yeah. And what's it like when you think about these things that you've just raked out of the ocean will be on someone's plate in a few days?
8: It's good for the plate that they're on.
9: <laughs> <laughs> you don't even worry about the plate though,
8: yeah.
9: do you? You just eat them. No. <laughs> <laughs>
3: W.A. Cocklefisher Bobby Holt with Joe Prendergast. That story will be on Landline this weekend. Make sure you tune in at 12.30 on Sunday or catch it later on ABC iview. And you can also read more online if you search ABC Landline Cockles. That's all we have time for on Countrywide. Thanks for joining me. Bye for now.